0: You're listening to WJMSradio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSradio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. I host the show each week, as always. And we're going to be getting into some interesting subjects in the realm of political uh, mechanics here in the United States. Uh, But first, as always, let's uh, check in with where we are on the COVID front. Uh, We are currently sitting at 33.5 million reported cases, and 599.8 thousand people have died from the disease since uh, early last year, and we've had uh, 308 million total doses of vaccines administered, uh, including those who have received a single dose of the Pfizer vaccine and uh, one or more doses of the other two. In addition, uh, just be aware there is the possibility of a fourth vaccine coming to market sometime later on this summer. We'll keep you posted. We talked about it last week. Uh, it is a new vaccine, but uses a true, uh, tested and proven Uh, mechanic of how the vaccine works so we'll see how that rolls out and uh, what the impact is but right now we continue to see you know an unrolling of a lot of the restrictions around the country and that's due entirely on the fact that more and more people have uh, taken the vaccine as well as people who are following or have been following the health protocols that the cdc And the medical community have been uh, pushing out to us over the past year and a half. So good job, America. We're moving it in the right direction. Let's keep the momentum going. Let's keep doing what we're doing. So that's uh, the COVID scenario. Uh, One other bit of COVID news that came out over the week. As you may have heard, uh, President Biden is in Europe for the meeting of the G7. And uh, just as of Sunday, reports are coming out that the member nations of the G7 have voted to send uh, their excess doses of coronavirus vaccine to other countries around the world uh, where it is desperately needed, particularly in the third world where the, the vaccination rates are you know just super low and there are a lot of people in need of vaccination. So we'll keep an eye on that as well and any other news that comes out of the G7 related to COVID and related to politics here in the United States, which it invariably will. One of the other things coming up in the G7 is later on this week, President Biden will be meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And I would love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. Uh, It should be interesting, a very big contrast from when the previous Uh, president uh, met with Putin and the outcome should be a little bit more uh, favorable to the U.S. uh, at least we hope so we'll keep you posted on all of these events as we go forward and any any news that comes up we will push out to you on our weekly show all right let's get into um, our first subject And we're going to talk about something that uh, we really haven't uh, delved into on this show uh, to date. But in light of recent news and recent events over the last uh, month or so, uh, I felt it was high time that we visited on the subject of critical race theory or CRT. And, you know, we've talked about various elements of the considerations for whether or not the United States of America is a, a fundamentally racist country. And, you know, the, the arguments are being raised hot and heavy, particularly over the battle on whether or not to allow the teaching of critical race theory or CRT in the public school systems. Uh, several states have already banned uh, teaching CRT. Uh, Other states are looking at it and studying the issue. So I wanted to touch on what critical race theory is and what the discussion is that's going on in this country today uh, about this topic. Um, I dug into some research on it and uh, found a uh, pretty good definition in Encyclopedia Britannica Online Edition. And it says as follows. Critical race theory, or CRT, an intellectual movement and loosely organized framework of legal analysis based on the premise that race is not a natural, biologically grounded feature of physically distinct subgroups of human beings, but a socially constructed, i.e. culturally invented, category that is used to oppress and exploit people of color. Critical race theorists hold that the law and legal institutions in the United States are inherently racist insofar as they function to create and maintain social, economic, and political inequalities between whites and non-whites, especially African Americans. So let, let's break out from right there. The idea and concept that uh, the United States of America is... An inherently racist country is not something that is a new thought um, with, you know, in here in 2021. Um, this actually has been a topic of discussion going back almost 50 years. And it is tied to the fact that uh, the, the founding of this country and much, uh, if not all of its early history, has had a very strong basis in uh, institutional and uh, basically, general uh, racist uh, attitudes and approaches by the the people in power in this country uh, over you know the the oppressed people in this country. And let me let me give you at least my definition when I say oppressed people. Obviously, you know a lot of the discussion is around the treatment of black. People here in the U.S., but it goes beyond that. It is the the treatment of all uh, people of color uh, in this country, whether it is you know Latinx, Asian, um, you know Native American. Uh, the the United States of America, since its founding, since seventeen seventy six or seventeen eighty nine, take your pick, um, has been functionally exploiting. Uh, you know, minorities in this country for the economic benefit of the white majority in this country. And, you know, to, to say that or deny that uh, America is an, in, an inherently racist uh, culture uh, is to deny the realities of history. Now, we have talked on this show about revisionist history uh, a few times. Uh, we've also talked about a, the controversial 1619 project, which was launched uh, two years ago, and or announced two years ago, and uh, began a very heated debate on exactly what the story of uh, enslaved peoples that were brought to this country, in particular those that came from the continent of Africa, And the 1619 Project um, really told the story of the experience of these uh, first arrivals from Africa into uh, the Colonial United States and then the United States uh, after the uh, Revolutionary War. Um, I I won't go into that here. I really want to focus on uh, the current discussion that's being held uh, around CRT. Um, But I do want to, you know, give a little bit more background, uh, again, from Encyclopedia Britannica. And they talk about critical race theory. Uh, It was officially organized in 1989 at the first annual workshop on critical race theory, though its intellectual origins go back much further uh, to the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, Its immediate precursor was the Critical Legal Studies, or CLS, movement, which dedicated itself to examining how the law and legal institutions serve the interests of the wealthy and powerful at the expense of the poor and marginalized. And to flesh this out, uh, we could look at uh, a study done by legal scholars Richard Delgado, uh, who was one of the founders of CRT, and Gene Stefanik, uh, where and, and, and their study, Uh, Critical Race Theory, and Introduction, which was first published in 2001. um, They they put forward several general propositions that they claim would be accepted by many critical race theorists, despite the considerable variation of belief among members of the movement. So the basic tenets they came up with uh, are, one, that race is a social construct and not biologically natural. Racism in the United States is normal, not aberrational. Not it is the common, ordinary experience of most peoples of color. And three, owing to what critical race theorists call uh, a thing called interest convergence, legal advances or setbacks for people of color tend to serve the interests of dominant white groups. So, you know, and they, they go on to say, that, um, you know, the, the racial hierarchy that characterizes American society may be unaffected or even reinforced by, you know, ostensible improvements in the legal status of oppressed or exploited people. Uh, their fourth general preposition was that members of minority groups periodically undergo uh, something called differential racialization or the attribution to them of varying sets of negative stereotypes, again, depending on the needs or interests of whites. Uh, Five, according to the thesis of intersectionality, uh, no individual can be adequately identified by membership in a single group. For example, an African-American person uh, may also identify as a woman, uh, a lesbian, a feminist, a Christian, and so on. And finally, the voice of color, uh, thesis holds that people of color are uniquely qualified to speak on behalf of other members of their group or groups according to the forms and effects of racism so let let's break all those big words down let, let's break all of that down uh, the the idea that race is a social construct uh, is also not new that has been an idea that has been brought forward uh, for several generations now um, You know that there there is no no such thing as the black race or the white race uh we're all humans we're all uh homo sapiens uh in in the sense of our species um the identification of groupings based by you know skin color or any other uh arbitrary or you know Handy grouping that has been picked and put forward is totally a, a social construct uh, for the convenience of one party over another. Uh, in most cases, for the convenience of you know the the white majority or dominant white population over the uh, minority populations who are perceived as quote lesser close quote uh, than Uh, so-called whites Um, and you know you you need look no further uh, again than the history of this country to see how that has manifested itself over the you know 200 and you know almost 50 years or more uh, that the United States uh, has been a a formal country and over the you know 400 to 600-year history of the North American continent as uh, colonizers uh, came and settled. Um, You can see the impacts of this uh, approach, uh, this superiority versus, you know, insuperiority. um, As you look at the treatment uh, of, number one, the indigenous native population of this continent uh, when the first white settlers and then, you know, as many, many more uh, came over from Europe. And you look at what happened uh, to the Native American population. Uh, two, you can look at the uh, transition over history of enslaved peoples, not, not just Africans, but uh, other people from other parts of the world who were brought here in an enslaved uh, capacity uh, as essentially free labor uh, property or chattel. Uh, you also can take in and, and add into that group not just those who were uh, quote enslaved close quote but there were also you know thousands and thousands of indentured servants which you know were were individuals and families and groups brought over uh, from other countries uh, primarily Europe uh, to work off a a debt. Uh, owed to a powerful uh, landowner or noble or other person of, quote, power, close quote, uh, in Europe. And they were brought over to work as roughly the same uh, jobs as enslaved people. The only difference was, uh, one, they were typically white. And two, they were, you know, in theory, working to pay off a debt owed, and not just working because they were owned by, you know, a a landowner or a plantation owner. So, you know, and that that in itself is a whole another uh, discussion, another topic for another time. Um, but getting back to CRT, uh, they, you know, the the. Discussion on critical race theory has has reached a fever pitch over the last few months, um, primarily because it it has, in one hand, seemed to be catching on uh, and gaining in popularity and discussion among many groups, uh, primarily, you know, uh, progressive leaning groups in favor and conservative leaning groups opposed. Uh, who are arguing back and forth over the truth of the history that CRT and and related projects like the 1619 Project uh, try to portray, and you know it, it it really is as as we've talked about on this show, it really is uh, an exercise in revisionist history for those who you know refuse to allow. Uh, a frank and honest and open discussion of critical race theory. Uh, who seek to deny its discussion in our schools, to deny its inclusion as part of the fabric of American history. Um, you know the the idea that you know uh, minorities, people of color, were less than than full human in fact, uh, is codified in the constitution of this country where, you know, African slaves were counted as three fifths of a human. And, you know, the, the reason for that was both a, a, a racial superiority, uh, reason as well as a mathematical reason where, you know, by, by the time that, you know, the constitution was being, uh, uh, voted on and approved around the country at the time uh african slaves outnumbered uh whites in this country by a significant margin so the idea of the three-fifths rule was in part a a racial a racial yoke around the neck of these enslaved people but also a a example of probably one of the earliest if not the earliest voter suppression tactics applied to people of color in this country uh that is that you would need you know uh 1.4 africans to equal you know one whole white person in this country at the time uh hence the three-fifths and you know it it's these facts of history You know, when when people are arguing that, you know, uh, America is not racist, one of the first things you can point to to prove it is to the Constitution of the United States, which clearly states that, you know, Africans are counted as three fifths of a man or a person. Um, If that's not a, a racial designation or a racial disparagement, I don't know what is. Then you move forward through slavery. And after slavery, then you move into, you know, a a brief moment of light called Reconstruction, where it looked like, you know, uh, formerly enslaved peoples were going to be elevated to a more full status and a more full benefit of citizenship in this country. And that was um, that was ended uh, with the the compromises after the civil war and you know reconstruction was ended by president Johnson uh you know uh, about a decade after it, it was launched um and again the the idea being and you know you can look at the history and and you know read the accounts and see and understand that the idea was that if if these formerly enslaved people gained too much power particularly in the realm of voting and in the realm of representation in the government then it would fundamentally alter the, the um, elevated position or the superior position of whites in this country and that was something that you know they just could not could not ca- um, cotton with so you know you move from that period Uh, into the post-emancipation proclamation period. Uh, And then from there, you move into the implementation of racial segregation in this country, Uh, Jim Crow laws, you, you know, and now you've moved from, you know, the 1700s, the early 1800s, Uh, The Emancipation Proclamation was 1865, Um, you know, by the time you get into the 1900s, now you're dealing with elements of Jim Crow uh, and, you know, de facto segregation in institutions and schools and means of public transportation and public accommodation in this country. And, you know, now you're moving forward into the 1960s where the the. Uh, civil rights movements get their start in the 50s uh, m- moving into the voting rights and the women's rights and so forth and now you've progressed to where we are today where we seem to be regressing back to a a reference point sometime in the uh, between the 1930s and the 1950s in terms of the approaches being used to suppress and restrict and limit uh, the votes of certain groups, um, ostensibly they're being you know identified under a political title, but the plain truth of the matter is that it is as much a racial discrimination as it is a political discrimination. Simply by the fact that the numbers of people that these uh, voter uh, rights and voter rules revisions will impact are overwhelmingly uh, targeted to people of color in this country, although not exclusively, let's be clear. Um, you know, and we spoke about that on last week's show, you know, and we will probably speak about it again many times as these laws go forward. So, you know, the, the, the idea and the denial that, you know, America has an inherent racist construct built into the fabric of its creation, uh, obviously is one that is is plain and simply not true. Um, America has a history. America has uh, traditions, you know, and and I've touched on a few of them. There are many, many more. Uh, you know, you you can you can look at. You know, all kinds of different events that have happened over the years. I know we've just passed the uh, 100th anniversary of the destruction of uh, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Again, a, a symbol and a, a, a event that recognizes that certain groups believe that when, you know, one minority group, become too, uh, too wealthy, too powerful, and too influential that uh, measures must be taken up to including and exceeding violent measures to return them to a, a less impactful state, to uh, eliminate the wealth, eliminate the power, eliminate the, the influence by, you know, any means necessary, up to and including burning down 40 blocks of a community in Texas, killing hundreds of people and, you know, making tens of thousands uh, of, of people, particularly black people in this case, homeless. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you have to rest your argument there. Um, now, is it all bleak and gloomy and, and bad? No. This country has made um, significant and substantial progress at times, um, you know, and we continue to try to push in that direction to become a more um, progressive-thinking, inclusive society uh, overall. Um, but it still remains an uphill battle, and one that um, many groups. And many uh, people are, are speaking out on, including this show, and you know we will continue to have discussions around this. But I encourage you to you know, do your own diligence, do your homework, dig into, look up, research, read about critical race theory, its origins, uh, what it stands for uh, then, what it stands for today. Read. And and listen to the discussions about critical race theory from both sides. Listen to the opposition. Why are they opposed to it? What is it about uh, a discussion of uh, trying to true up America to its history of you know, racial issues and racial problems? Why is that such a bad thing that the actual teaching of material about that has to be banned? So you know there there's a lot to dig into there, and I encourage you to do that research to do that checking into it and you know and, and make your own make your own case. you know, make your own argument, uh, answer your own questions. Uh, so you know we'll uh, We'll touch back on this again because I'm sure this is a subject that's going to be in discussion for quite some time, particularly in light of some of the political uh, legislation that's orbiting around Washington at the present moment, which we'll also talk about in future shows as we go forward. So let's take our break here and we will uh, come back on the other side and want to talk about uh, some other items that have been in the news recently that uh we need to dive into you're listening to fired up right here on wjmsradio.com where radio is reimagined this is steve we'll be right back after the break Welcome back to Fired Up, right here on WJMSradio.com, where radio is reimagined. You're in the Fired Up space, and we're talking things politics. So, if you follow this show, and if you are a regular listener, number one, thank you. I appreciate it greatly. Um, Number two, you know that the premise of this show is is to bring you information uh, and facts on the games that are played under the guise of political leadership in this country. And we have, over the the now 80 episodes that we've recorded of this show, we have talked about a wide variety of these games played both by Democrats and Republicans uh, as we have gone through... You know, the uh, election year of 2020 and all of the things that went on behind that and the election and all the post election drama and, and so on and so forth. Uh, as I said, if you followed this show, you know how we we cover the games that are played. Well, that still continues. And the the latest. I don't know the latest version of the game, the latest chapter of the game, whatever you want to call it. Um, is now the debate and discussion going around in Congress, in the House and in the Senate over uh, two bills uh, that the Democrats, who, in case you haven't been paying attention, control both the House and the Senate, even though their majorities are are small, they are in control. Um, One is uh, called H.R. 1, or House Resolution 1, It's also known as the for the people act and the other is hr four which is the john lewis voting rights act now both of these seek to accomplish much the same thing uh... in different ways and right now the debate going on uh... in the senate because the house has actually passed both of these bills And they are, you know, in the purview of the Senate, uh, awaiting hopefully floor debate and a vote uh, to come at some point. Uh, Current information out of the Biden administration is they are looking to bring the vote to the floor in H.R. 1 uh, probably by the end of the summer or into the fall. But it is also likely that we will see H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill. Uh, come up for a vote in the Senate ahead of that, uh, primarily because, uh, given the climate in the Senate uh, right now, uh, with you know the the minority party obstruction going on and and all of the political wrangling and the the divided nature of both parties, which we'll talk a little bit about in the context of this, um, it looks like. The John Lewis Act may come up first uh, if for no other reason than it is the most likely of the two to be able to pass without requiring the need for a filibuster uh, and and hopefully garner bipartisan support enough to bring that uh, legislation to conclusion and send it to President Biden's desk. Um, And it it begs the question of, you know, as I said, both of these bills do uh, somewhat the same thing. But, you know, how is the Lewis Voting Rights Act different from H.R. 1? Uh, H.R. 1 is a huge bill, Uh, it is uh, another of those bills that seems to have, you know, all the elements, including the kitchen sink, thrown in. Uh, With the logic being in the way that the the machine works and the game is, is kind of played is you put out these everything bills and then it allows you the ability to peel off pieces of it in an effort to garner, you know, bipartisan support. Well, you know, that takes time, that takes energy, and we end up, as we have seen over the past couple of months... Uh, we end up seeing so much effort being put into the argument p- pro and con that the bill just sort of sits there uh, not going anywhere. Um, but in, in, in getting back to what I wanted to, to address in this segment, you know, what are the differences between the uh, H.R. 1 bill and the H.R. 4 bill? Um, so, you know, the, the For the People Act, uh, it would have done a number of things. One, it, it primarily deals with the, the mechanics of voter registration. Um, and it, it creates a national automatic system for registering voters and establishing national standards for mail-in and absentee ballots. Um, it, these, these are really big deals, and it's hard to, un, to overstate what that is. Nonetheless, in its current form, it looks like that bill is not going to go anywhere uh, due both to the opposition of the Republican Party, along with the opposition of two key Democratic senators, uh, you know, which we have talked about before, and they, they being uh, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Senator Christian Sinema from Arizona, who are uh, standing against this bill against their own party uh, citing that you know, in the case of, of uh, senator mansion uh, who wrote an op-ed in the charleston gazette mail he said the for the people act is quote too partisan close quote arguing that congressional action on federal voting rights legislation must be the result of both democrats and republicans coming together to find a pathway forward end quote um you know, and as long as you know, he is maintaining that position that uh, bipartisanship is the the foundation block, is the linchpin of getting this legislation passed. Um, it, it, which is in in some regards, and I can't totally disagree with him here. Um, it it really is important that these big legislative packages do have bipartisan support. Uh, for no other reason than it precludes you know either party from coming back and saying you know uh we did this on our own or you know the the minority party from saying look what they have done and and we've seen this this debate this circular argument roll out before over the years on on many different things um but getting back to it you know, the, the For the People Act, you know, as I said, would create uh, national registration databases or would pull information from pre-existing government databases like state driver's licenses, taxpayer information, and so forth. It includes a provision that anyone could opt out of being automatically registered to vote, but barring that, every American would be automatically registered. Well, you know, given... That, as, as we've said on this show, you know, historically, that um, the number of Republican voters uh, are dramatically outnumbered by the number of Democratic and independent voters, uh, literally two to one. Um, this is not something that the Republicans would like to see happen as, you know, it. It would mean more Democratic registrations than Republican registrations. That's one argument. Um, the other argument is that this bill is too broad, that it is not specific enough, and that there are other things packed into it that make it just unacceptable to the conservative minority uh, party in in the uh, Senate. So... You know, what does that mean the Democrats need to do? Well, as I said, with so many things in the bill, they need to try to, to, to pare it down to a point where it can receive acceptance by the Republicans in order to pass, with hopefully its major provisions uh, intact. And, you know, that has been, you know, proposed in, in some fashion uh, by. You know, the Republicans on perhaps what they'd like to see and the Democrats uh, have debated and I believe ultimately rejected the proposal. uh, And we go back and forth. It's the same thing we went through with the infrastructure bill. The Democrats proposed uh, something like a two point two trillion dollar bill. The Republicans come back with a six hundred billion dollar bill. So you know the the final version is somewhere in the middle of that wide you know 1.4 trillion dollar gap between the two proposals. Now you know a a one a slightly higher than one trillion dollar uh, package has been proposed by the Biden administration. Uh, early on, it looks like the Republicans may not accept it, but we'll see what happens. But anyway, getting back to HR1 and HR4 uh, we have much the same battle going on. Um, you know, it, it is clear that the Republicans are not fans of the contents of the, for the people act. Uh, fortunately for the Republicans, they don't have to be the only bad guys in this because Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, uh, are, are being, you know, bad guy enough for both parties. Um, you know I, I think the 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 idea that these two senators have in you know using their uh, ability to to defeat the the 5150 majority of the democrats in the senate and thereby prevent this bill from moving forward because it would be then you know certain doomed to certain failure um you know it, it, it is okay to leverage your power in in situations however you know there there has to be a way forward to get to the greater good here um right now we've got some 14 states that have already passed uh some restrictive voter suppression uh laws we've got you know another uh 33 states that are processing legislation through their respective state legislatures uh, to do similarly the same thing and you know it it looks like as we move forward toward the 2022 midterms that we're going to have another election in turmoil uh, at at that time so you know it's it's clear that somewhere somehow um the Democratic Party and the Democratic leadership needs to you know find out from Senator Manchin what exactly is it that he wants and from Senator Sinema what exactly is it that she wants and try and come to a compromise with them so that they can hold their their uh, 50-seat caucus together and rely on Vice President Harris as president of the Senate to cast a tie-breaking vote. Or, in, in addition to that, the Democrats are also working to try and find at least 10 Republican senators who will vote with them in order to eliminate the possibility of the filibuster being applied and further delaying the bill. And we we talked about the filibuster, you know, in last show and a couple of other shows uh, previous. So we won't go into that here. Uh, Google filibuster if you need more information on what it is. Now, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or H.R. 4 is a much different bill. And according to uh, an article that came out from Peter Stevenson, a senior producer at The Washington Post uh, website, uh, it is not fair to describe it as a substitute for the For the People Act, but Democrats are still pushing to move it forward in Congress. It has, I'm sorry, it has not yet been brought up on, in the House in this Congress, uh, although an earlier version did pass in 2019 before failing in the Senate committee process. Uh, and that But that was in the prior uh, session. Uh, so the The Lewis Voting Rights Act would do the following, among other things. Uh, It would create a pathway for citizens or the federal government to challenge new voter laws in the courts, particularly if parties can show that the new law infringes on minority voting rights. Uh, It would require public notice for any changes made to voting laws in a state or political subdivision. It would provide new rules for polling places on Indian reservations that require states to pay for polling places at no cost to tribes. It would require many categories of changes in state and local election procedures to go through a process called preclearance, essentially approval from the Justice Department Civil Rights Division before being implemented. So let, let's stop there for a second and talk about this, this term preclearance. Uh, you may or may not recall that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had this pre-clearance uh, section, which was Section 5, which was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2013. And in doing so, they removed the requirement for states, and, and in particular, uh, it was targeting uh, 11 states, those that were part of the Confederacy, those had a, a lengthy history of voter suppression and you know minority disenfranchisement, et cetera, to file any and all voting process or procedure changes with the Justice Department who would review it and make sure that it did not negatively impact minority voters in that jurisdiction uh, before they would allow that law to happen. Well, the Supreme Court struck that down which led to the, the wave of voter suppression laws that we now see today uh, in, in numbering in the hundreds that have been filed in state legislatures and, you know, have become law in many states. And, you know, we're, we're seeing court challenges bubbling up from the the federal and district level heading toward the Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, this this. Uh, pre-clearance reinstatement would basically bring back uh, much of the Section Five uh, element of the Voting Rights Act, uh, which was stripped away by the Supreme Court uh, by by recodifying it in law. Um, some of the changes that this um, this this bill and these, these points. Um, would require and require changes to a whole lot of different kinds of laws and voting procedures to be subject to federal pre-clearance and these would include changes to the number of at-large elected positions within a state or subdivision, redistricting, voter ID requirements, alterations to multilingual voting materials, changes to precinct locations or early voting access, and changes to how voter rolls are purged. And if you've been paying attention, you'll notice that all of these are things that uh, the majority of these voter suppression laws that are that are being processed through the states uh, would affect in one way or another. So you can imagine that in the, the Republican-controlled legislatures around the country, um, you know, their pushback is that it is an imposition of the federal government into a state-run process, which is true. Elections are, are organized and run by the state. Um, however, the federal government is, is arcing over that only in the respect that laws developed in the states cannot discriminate uh, in their application or intent. You know, the, as I said, the Republicans uh, and opponents of this, this bill say that it uh, gives the federal government way too much control. Um, you know, and again, it, it targeted certain states. Um, those states were Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia, Plus a few individual counties in California, Florida, New York, North Carolina, South Carolina, and two townships in Michigan. The action on this law uh, was argued that the requirements for it, uh, and again, this law was, was passed and signed in 1965, that essentially you know, the, the need for it, the basis for it, uh, no longer exists now. You can read through recent newspaper headlines and stories and see that that statement is slightly less than totally true. But, you know, still doesn't dilute the fact that Republicans uh, are opposed to the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act as they are with the For the People Act. In fact, Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, said the point of both bills is to get the federal government basically to manage the voting system. Uh, and, you know, as I said, the, the voting system in this country is, you know, owned and operated at the state level. Uh, the federal government does not run the voting process in the individual states, although it can provide oversight and advice on, you know, elements that may be discriminatory. Um, but that still isn't changing, you know, the point of view of Senator Manchin. He's on the record in citing his unwillingness to vote for the For the People Act as it stands right now. And as I said, it is incumbent on the Democratic leadership to find some way of uh, bringing him into agreement with a version of the bill that accomplishes what they want to accomplish and yet doesn't uh doesn't offend Senator Mansion and Senator Cinema, part of which is how they they are going to deal with the filibuster. Uh, we talked about that last show. Uh, that is a a sticky uh, issue that the Senate is dealing with. Um, some senators are calling for abolishing the filibuster. Others are calling for modifying it. Uh, Senator Mansion, uh, as of at least this broadcast is on the record of saying he doesn't want to see any changes to it because he says he believes that it encourages bipartisan participation uh, in legislation so we'll see how that goes but the 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 bottom line at the end of the day is you know it it's clear that there is a lot of work to be done in terms of bridge building between the parties uh, to get more and more bipartisan efforts underway now, let's be clear. The, the Senate does operate in a bipartisan manner on many things. There have been, you know, uh, at least a couple of dozen bills that have have passed through the Senate on a bipartisan basis, uh, you know, some dealing with budgetary items, some dealing with minor alloc- you know, allocations of funds here and there, some dealing with spending and so forth. Um, but it is these major pieces of legislation, these big packages that uh, seem to be the most problematic. So, you know, it, it begs the question is, would it be better if these bills were were boiled down, you know, and we can look at, as a classic example, as the poster child for this, the infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill that was, was uh, put forward by The Biden administration, again, was one of these kitchen sink bills. It had stuff in it related to education, related to all kinds of things that aren't specifically infrastructure. And the Republicans criticized them for it. Uh, In my opinion, rightly so. If you're going to do an infrastructure bill, you know, bridges, highways, railways, buses, planes, trains, uh, Internet, you know, all of that is infrastructure. Um, Housing for seniors. Not so much. Not that it's not important, mind you, but, you know, it's not infrastructure. We need to have a better approach taken by whoever's in charge of, you know, the the House and the Senate, because the Republicans did the same thing when they were in control as well. They would bring these huge bills uh, with everything in it and, you know, ram it through on their majority um, and sort out the details later. So, you know, it, it is clear that the voice that's not being heard at the table is the voice of the American people. As I always say, we need to make sure that we are engaged in the process, that we are communicating with our our uh, senators and our House of uh, Representative uh, Congress people, that we are communicating with our state legislatures that we are communicating with our local legislatures to make sure they understand and know in certain terms what our position is on these Im- important issues that are going to impact us in the long run so again as always our call to action get in touch with your elected officials make sure you make your position clear on what it is you expect them to do uh, get your friends to do the same you know start a a Facebook campaign you know, and, and blow up their Facebook page, you know, blow up their Twitter account and, and you know, flood it with uh, information that you want them to look at. Let them know that the American people are watching. This is our this is our job in in how the government of this country operates. And this is what we need to do. So, as always, that's our call to action. So we'll um, we'll end the show on that high note there that's what we'll do we'll just soldier on and we'll get it done i will say let me apologize for the increased amount of background noise in today's show um the the soundproofing in the window uh needs to be replaced and i will take care of that so hopefully next week's show will be a lot quieter uh with fewer interruptions for loud motorcycles and cars so until then everybody please stay safe if you have not yet gotten your vaccination please go get yourself vaccinated uh it is you know it it, it is safe it is something you can do to gain more and freer access to what's going on out there uh and you know i can speak from from my experience it's really nice not to have to wear a mask so you know stay safe keep doing what you're doing america we're moving in the right direction Everyone take care. This is Steve. You've been listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSradio.com. If there are any comments you want to make on the show or questions you want to ask or feedback you want to give, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I love getting your emails. I love to be able to respond to them. And as always, thank you for listening. And I will talk to you again in seven days.